Welcome back to After the Buzzer Sports Talk, and I'm your host, Aiden Mayer. Guys, welcome back for another episode. Sorry for no episode these past few days. Again, I've just been really, really busy. But uh, again, that last episode I did was a two-day project, so I'm sure that uh, that got you through the week. But anyway, in today's episode, I will be discussing first Thursday Night Football. I got to do a recap on that between the Panthers and the Buccaneers. Uh, Bucks defense surprised me a little bit. Uh, and the Panthers' offense not look good. We're going to break that game down. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, NBA. Yes, I am getting to NBA for the first time in what feels like years. It's really been a couple weeks. Maybe two weeks. I don't you know. Not very long. Not, not too long, but pretty long for me. And I want to get to the NBA. So basically what I'm going to do is take around 10 of the newest duos in the NBA. Basically, almost every single new duo in the NBA, and I'm going to give a breakdown on that duo and how I think they'll fit together. I'm basically going to give them a grade on how I think they will fit together as a duo. And then, last but not least, we're going to be talking about the Red Sox. Dave Dombrowski, I know I'm about a week late on this. I'm sorry, but I've just been obviously very busy. I've really only done, like, one podcast since five, six days ago when this happens, and that was a two-hour episode in itself, so... We're going to talk about Dave Dombrowski, how I feel about that, and the Red Sox uh, past however many games I've missed. I'm just going to have to take a look at that. I just don't know off the top of my head the exact number. So first, we are going to get to a Thursday Night Football recap. So let's get to that. So here, two teams, Panthers, Buccaneers coming off week one losses, trying to bounce back in Carolina. Division rivals, I wouldn't exactly say rivals, but they're, you know, division foes. And this was a pretty important game for two teams that aren't exactly recognized as the best team in the division. Most people look at the Saints as the best team in the division. Some people saw it being maybe the Falcons. No one picked the Panthers and Buccaneers. Like, most people think these were going to be the bottom two teams with the Saints probably being one of the best teams in the NFL and the Falcons maybe sneaking in a wild card spot or going 9-7, getting that second spot. Some people even thinking the Falcons would win the division. But these two teams are trying to make noise. And this was a big game because you don't want to start out 0-2 as the underdog, right? So these are just two teams that had a lot on the line, I felt like. And I picked the Panthers in this game. Personally, I picked the Bucks to go 7-9, and which is a little higher than most people predicted going into the year. And I put the Panthers at 7-9, and which was about average uh, compared to other people's predictions. And the Bucks actually ended up winning, and I wasn't too surprised. But I was surprised that th- about these two things, I, uh, about the Buccaneers at least, I was surprised, one, by the way their defense played, and two, Jameis Winston threw no interceptions. Okay, so we'll start with the Bucks. Jameis Winston, 16 for 25, 208 yards, one touchdown. Jameis Winston looked good. He looked efficient. No interceptions. He looked solid, okay? I'm not going to go ahead and sit here and say Bruce Arians has now all of a sudden changed Jameis Winston. He's an elite quarterback because he didn't play that phenomenal, right? He didn't play. He played solid, and he didn't turn the ball over, which was important. I remember I did a preview, and I said the most interceptions he can throw if the Bucs want to win this game is one and two if they really play well. If they really play well, he can afford two, but one really at the max. And he threw none, which I was impressed with. I said, you know what? I picked up Carolina's defense in Fantasy League, and they gave me, you know, around six points, which isn't horrible. But 
I picked them up figuring they're going up against Tampa. You know, they don't have a great run game. They've got a good receiving duo there. They've got, you know, O.J. Howard, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, even Cameron Bright. But James, they just, James Winston's going to turn the ball over. And he didn't. And, you know, Carolina's defense was not horrible. Overall, as a unit, they were actually solid. But you've got to force turnovers when you can against James Winston. Put a little pressure on him. Uh, give him difficult reads. And it's not that he can't read defenses. It's just you know, make it a little complicated, maybe give him a complicated look. And it's not that he can't, again, it's not that he can't read defenses, but he's going to make mistakes. And on a lot of these throws, some of them are bad throws. Some of them are just, he needs to make better decisions. Sometimes he may miss a read and then he'll think the corner, you know, he'll think the receivers may be cutting an in route and he really goes with an out route. And then there's a bad thrower. Sometimes even there's just something. I don't even think it's all missed throws, just misreads, bad decisions. You need to capitalize on those. And I still think James Winston made a few bad decisions. And I think Carolina maybe could have got one interception out of that, but they didn't overall James Winston, you know, played well. I thought he played more of a uh, control of the ball because James Winston's more like a, a wild slinger. Like, this guy can push the ball upfield. He's got an arm, but he makes wild decisions as well. He's very wild. He's very loose with the football. And that pays off sometimes, and it doesn't. I felt like he's more controlled. It was less, you know, up-tempo and let's just push the ball up the field. I'm not saying he didn't. He kept things pretty up tempo, but not as much as usual. He's a little—he was a little less loose today, which I think is good. He needs to control those turnovers because when you throw three interceptions, it is tough to win a football game. So he really needs to limit those interceptions, and he did. Overall, he had a pretty efficient day. His day did not wow me. Don't get me wrong; it didn't wow me. I think when I look at Carolina, yeah, they've got a good, solid front seven. Their secondary isn't great. It's not horrible. It's just not great. And overall, defensively, Carolina is solid. It's not the toughest matchup we'll face all year. And they could not get – and the Bucks defense really helped them out as well. Running the ball, I'm not a fan of this running game. Remember, I don't like Peyton Barber. I'm not a huge fan of Ronald Jones, but I still give him a bit of a chance. But I look at it. Peyton Barber got 23 carries, 82 yards and a touchdown. He was not horrible. Peyton Barber, again, I don't think he's turning a corner or anything. I don't think he'll ever be a starter-level uh, running back. He was okay this game. 23 carries. is clear they were trying to keep the ball. I don't want to say keep the ball out of James Winston's hands, but when you run the ball more than you do pass it, that just kind of show goes to show you, you know, something, something's up. I mean, overall, as a unit, they ran the ball 27 times, passed it 25. If you count James Winston's three scrambles, they ran the ball 31 times, passed it 25. So they dropped back to pass about as many times as they – uh, ran the ball, but if you, you know, James Winston scrambled four times rather than um, passing the ball. So, we factor in those things. They ran the ball more than they did pass it, which it's a passer's league. I mean, I remember this was a stat two years ago. Again, I keep bringing this up, but the Cowboys led the league in, uh, you know, percentage of times running the ball with 49.9%. Every team in the league passes the ball more than they run it. And it was clear the Bucks had a run-heavy uh, attack, and they were trying to I don't, again, I don't want to say keep the ball in James Winston's hands, but they're trying to limit his throws to also limit his mistakes. But again, in those 25 throws, I thought he was good. He had some good passes. A few of them were a little wild. Uh, but nonetheless, I still think he's had a pretty good game, pretty accurate throws, not too many bad decisions. James Winston had a good game. It didn't wow me, but it, it was enough. It was enough to get the win. Peyton Barber wasn't horrible. He didn't wow me, but he wasn't horrible. Ronald Jones... 
Should have gave you more than those four carries, only nine yards. James Winston scrambled four times for nine yards as well. Receiving the ball, Chris Godwin went off. Eight catches, 121 yards, and a touchdown. He had a, just a great game. Round of applause for Chris Godwin. Mike Evans, on the other hand, four catches for 61 yards. Him and James Winston need to find that connection. I'm not blaming this all on Mike Evans. I do think James Winston hasn't gave him a lot of great balls, a lot of opportunities. He's been looking for Chris Godwin a lot. And in that week one, no box wide receiver had a very good week. James Winston was horrible. But this week, it was all Chris Godwin. And I saw Mike Evans get a few throws over his head. And overall, they need to connect. The connection was there before. Him and Mike Evans, I expect more out of Mike Evans. I expect more out of that connection. I wouldn't panic on Mike Evans just yet. I'd give it another week or two for sure. But if in the next week or two he keeps putting up kind of poor performances, I think it's start time to worry. Week three, week four, we start to worry about that. But it's the first two weeks. Let's slow down. He didn't have a horrible game. Four catchers for 61 yards, especially when Chris Godwin did what he just did. Cameron Ray, two catchers for 10 yards. Dare Oganobo, whatever that, I, Dare, Dare Ogano, Dare Oganboele, how do you, Dare Oganboele, had a catch for nine yards, who, number 44, running back, didn't run the ball, I never seen this guy, Dare Oganboele, 25 years old, undrafted free agent in 2017. So this guy is just off the street. If you know who this is, I would be shocked. Came out of Wisconsin, 5'11", 205 pounds, undrafted free agent. So obviously, this isn't just me. He has five career receptions, 42 yards. So yeah, it's not just me. Not just me that did not know who Dare Ogunbowale is. But that's who he is, okay? In case you were wondering, that is who Dare Ogunbowale is. Peyton Barber also had a catch for seven yards. No O.J. Howard. No, this is a guy that they believe in. They spent the first-round pick on him. And, I, again, I'm not saying, you know, this one bad game where he just does nothing. All of a sudden, you know, it's, it's a forgotten season. He had four catches for 32 yards in a fumble last game. And it's clear... Him and Cam Brady are just going to uh, split snaps. Even Brady didn't even have a great game. Two catches for 10 yards. I didn't see much O.J. Howard. Really didn't at all. So that was kind of the box. I mean, they had a solid... I mean, the connection between Winston and Godwin was great. But other players need to step up. Like Godwin, Evans, Brayton, Howard should be a great big four. Like, you look at that... Godwin and Evans should be a consistent, one of the best wide receiver duos in the league. And then between Howard and Brait, that's two inconsistent tight ends. But one should show up pretty much every week. You know, this week, both of them didn't really show up. But other than that, I mean, you need to really establish a better run game. I, I would like to see them get a running back. How does this Bucks team sit here and kind of just look at it and say, all right, well, go, like last year's draft, they go into it. And you're telling me they sit there and just say, you know what? We're not going to pick a quarterback unless it's very late round. We want to give James Winston another year under Bruce Arians. We're fine at tight end because we have Cameron Bray. We've got OJ Howard. It's not the best tight end duo, but it's a solid one. We don't need a tight end. You've got Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. Maybe you target like a third wide receiver because I really don't think they have one. But I wouldn't say that's a top need with those two and the tight ends you have. Maybe go for the O-line. 
I mean, defense wouldn't be bad. They did pick Devin White, but I'm just saying, no running back. You don't want to try to establish some sort of run game. Like, running backs are so easy to find. Free agency, like, they're so easy to find. There are a surplus of running backs. So those teams that don't have running backs, there's something wrong. And I'm not saying Peyton Barber's horrible. I'm just not, I'm just saying you can find much better. There are, I can make a list of players better than him. There are backups better than Peyton Barber. Okay, and he's your starter. There are there's a surplus of. I mean, I, I don't want to. I, I kind of want to argue there's third stringers better than Barber, but I won't go that far. I no, I can't. I can't go that far. But you get my point. There's just a surplus out there. You know, you don't have to spend a high draft pick on one, but I'm just saying they should look to do it. And then defensively, was where the box really were good. I think their performance was a bit overrated out of the gate because people went, oh. Only 14 points for the Panthers. And one of those was on a safety. Only 14 points? Pretty much 12? Wow. The the, the Panthers, I mean, the Bucks defense was great. They were good. Yeah, they were good. But boy, was Cam Newton bad. Boy, was Cam... Oh, my God. Cam Newton was horrible. I don't even care. He threw for 333 yards. I don't care. I don't care. He went 25 for 51 and missed so many throws. Wide open throws to Curtis Samuel. He was missing, you know, just so many throws out into the flat, just over his head, to the left, to the right. It was just like, oh, my God. What are you throwing at? And after that game, people are saying, well, Cam Newton's lost his touch. You guys are just realizing that now? You guys, don't get me wrong. Cam Newton has been worse this season than he was last season. This is probably his worst game in a while. Okay, I'm not going to go on and say he's horrible, but he's under 50%, missed a ton of throws, and although he threw for a lot of yards, yeah, you should throw for 333 yards when you face the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense and get 51 passing attempts. Okay? That that should be easy. That should be... I could throw it... A backup quarterback should be able to do that. Go up against one of the worst defenses in the league. Get 51 passing attempts and throw for 333 yards. That does not impress me at all. No, it really doesn't. Okay? It it really doesn't. Now, I have to give the Buccaneers credit where credit is due. They had good coverage at times. Oh, they stuffed Christian McCaffrey in the backfield. McCaffrey, 16 carries for 37 yards. They game, game plan so well for Christian McCaffrey. They game plan so well on 4th and 1, 4th and 2, because they know Ron Rivera is an aggressive head coach. They know the Panthers like to go for it on 4th and 1, 4th and 2. And the Buccaneers game plan so well, and I give them so much credit, because the talent on the Bucs defense is not very good, okay? They've got guys like Vernon Hargraves, uh, they've got guys like Shaquille Barrett. They've got guys like the Dominican Sue. You could name a few others. I mean, Devin White, but he isn't going to do too much. And yeah, there's other guys back there, obviously. And I'm not saying they're one of the very worst defenses in the league. They're not very good. They are not very good. Okay. They're trying to build this thing up from the ground. And they're starting to get a little better. They've been better than I thought. The Buccaneers defense has done better than I thought. But, still, they're not great. They faced the 49ers offense and the Panthers offense. 
I'm not going to over-exaggerate, over-rate, I don't even care what you say, these two performances because of the offenses they were facing and how those offenses performed, not so great. Not to mention, like, last week, George Kittle scores three touchdowns and all of them were called off. Like, that. that's a little lucky. That's a little, just a little lucky. Okay, so I am not going to take anything away from them either. But defensively, like, Vernon Hargraves was amazing. Like, that first week, he had the pick six. He was pretty good. This week, 11 tackles. I mean, he was great in coverage. I would say great. He was, very, he was good in coverage. 11 tackles, so he stuffed McCaffrey on that fourth and one at the goal line. Like, he was very good. You know who else was good? Shaquille Barrett. Three sacks. He had all three sacks for the team. I mean, he was getting to the quarterback. It was a group effort. Like, on that third sack, it was a group effort. He was credited for the sack. It wasn't like a half sack for him or anything. I just think the pressure came. Newton kind of stepped to his right just a little bit, and then he fell right into Barrett's arms. And I look at other guys, like, I would have liked to see, you know, when Donald Kinsu, you know, goes out there and finally plays. Uh, you know, him to, to make that impact as well, like Gerald McCoy did. Uh, who's on the Panthers? Gerald McCoy. And he actually, I remember he had at least one tackle. He had one tackle, three assists. One tackle, three assists. I, I remember his tackle. Yep. Luke Keekley had eight tackles for them. Luke Keekley is just a beast. I think Bobby Wagner is better than Luke Keekley. Excuse me, I'm about to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. I think Bobby Wagner is better than Luke Keekley personally, but still, he had a good uh, good game. Then, I mean, I'll just wrap this up with the Panthers. Receiving court, Greg Olson, six catches for 110 yards. I Olsen, someone, like, if you're a fantasy owner, don't don't look at his performance like, oh, that wasn't too bad. No, because Olsen's going to end up getting hurt, or next week he's going to drop no catches, and then he's going to get hurt. Or, you know, I just don't see him putting up these type of performances. It wasn't even an amazing performance. But anyway, even if it was still a solid performance, I don't see him even putting up a ton of solid performances if he stays healthy, which he won't. So don't don't get too giddy about that. Curtis Samuel, five catches for 91 yards. He wasn't horrible, but Cam Newton missed some throws. Like, he's wide open in the flat on one play. That would have been an, at least an eight-yard pickup for a first down. That yeah, would have made it six catches for probably 100 yards. And Cam Newton missed the throw. So, I, you know, he had a solid game. DJ Moore, nine catches for 89 yards. Christian McCaffrey, two for 16. Jarius Wright, two for 15. Chris Hogan, one for 12. Uh, so, you know, they, you know, Greg Olson, I'm not sure you can rely on him that much week in and week out just because he's injury prone, just because he's at that point of his career. But Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore seem to be the wide receiver duo there. Just like a, they're not too flashy, really. They aren't. It's not a very flashy wide receiver duo, but it's respectable. It's young. It's a little unproven as well, but they're going to go find their way. And then defensively, again, Luke Keekley was the man. Don Terry Pro, Brian Burns, and, and then Jermaine Carter and Mario Addison ganged up for a ta- uh, sack. Excuse me. So both teams had three sacks, but Cam Newton needs to step up. I don't know how people are just realizing now Cam Newton is on the decline. Again, last season, I know, statistically speaking, 2018, he had a better season than he did in 2017. But that doesn't go to show. In his 14 games, the team went 6-for-8. He threw 13 interceptions, 24 touchdowns, which meant he threw pretty much an interception per game and threw, didn't even have a 2-to-1 ratio, which is not very good. 
and he had a rate of 94.2 or QBR 57.4, which is actually very good. But I don't give him all the credit. He had 68% completion percentage. His career high before that was 62 back in 2013. In his MVP year, he had a 60% completion percentage. There's no coincidence. It's not just odd that he had such a high completion percentage. Checkdowns, 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 checkdowns. That's why completion percentage is starting to get rigged. In ways like Daniel Jones at Duke, his receivers couldn't catch a beach ball. And in ways, checkdowns. People, some of these quarterbacks, as they start to get older, after they suffer an injury, you start with Derek Carr after he suffered his injury, a lot more checkdowns. Matt Stafford, he starts to get older, the system changes a little, checkdowns. You start with Cam Newton last year. Any quarterback can go out there, check down to Christian McCaffrey, one every three plays, and watch McCaffrey run around the field. It, it That's so simple. Any quarterback can do that. Any quarterback can go out there and throw it to Christian McCaffrey one every three passing attempts. It, 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 the completion percentage, you have to look beyond the stats sometimes. The completion percentage wasn't Cam Newton just throwing dots to his receivers all year. That was not it. Cam Newton became a checkdown quarterback last year. He started just doing a ton of checkdowns. He was highly talented running back in Christian McCaffrey. Okay? It's clear. He's starting to regress. He got off to a very good start last season, and that's why his stats are better than they were in 2017. One in 2017, he was not very good. That was just a down year for him. The shoulder injuries, he played all 16 games, but the shoulder started bothering him, right? And then he eventually got hurt the next season, missing two games. The shoulder's starting to catch up to him. He's 30 years old. He's starting to lose some of that athletic ability. For example, this is one of the best scrambling quarterbacks of all time. Last season, he had 7.2 rushing attempts per game. The season before, 8.7. This season, 2.5 rushes a game. A total of 5 rushes this season for negative 2 yards. That speaks for itself. He doesn't rely on his legs as much anymore. He's scared to take some of these hits. Because he's taken a beating in the past. Don't get me wrong, he's taken some hits. Every quarterback does. He's taken a little more than the average. Right? So... Not to mention, he's already got two fumbles on the season. And this is a guy who had six the season before and then nine the season back in 2017. Yes, he's fumble prone. I mean, the guy takes a lot of hits. He likes to scramble, but two so far already? Two off the bat like that against the Niners defense and the Bucks defense? It, you know, the stats are starting to pile up against him. People just now are starting to realize he's starting to regress again. I don't blame all of them. Some people, again, I'm over-hating a little bit on Cam Newton. So it is a bit just me not really liking his performance last season. But again, the stats are a lot better than the last season than they were before. Because one, half of his throws were checked down to Christian McCaffrey. Or McCaffrey would just do his magic. And then, oh, he you basically handed the ball off to him. Like, what's the difference between handing the ball off to McCaffrey and flipping the ball to McCaffrey two, from two feet away? Not Not much. There isn't really much of a difference at all. But it just counts as passing yards rather than just handing the ball to him. That's why. It wasn't really that he did great. And don't get me wrong, he had a good start to the season. But then people start to figure out the scheme. They caught on and they exploited Cam Newton. And then eventually he started to struggle. He got hurt. And here we are. He's a serviceable quarterback. He's not going to win you a Super Bowl. 
okay? And that's why I love the Will Greer pick. I think he's got potential. If Cam Newton gets hurt, he can be a good replacement, and he may have to replace him soon. I don't think this season, but if he, unless he gets hurt, but we'll see. I think the, the clock's starting to tick on Cam Newton, uh, unfortunately. The 2015 MVP isn't as good as he used to be. We all knew that, but I'm just saying, people act like, you know, this is like something new. Again, he's played worse this season than he did last season, but you should have seen this coming when you saw him play at the end of the season. So that's my Thursday night football recap. So now, for the first time in ages, we are going to get to some NBA, so let's get to that. Finally, 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 I can get to some NBA, because right now, the reason I have not done NBA, a few reasons. One, the NBA is as dry as a desert right now. There is nothing going on whatsoever. Like, the last news... We've really gotten in the NBA is the Dwight Howard news that he was signing with the Lakers two and a half weeks ago. That is the big that's the big news. I mean, that was actually three weeks ago. That was not two and a half. That was over three weeks ago. The biggest NBA news we have got ever since the we let me restate this. We have not got any NBA news at all. Like, nothing significant besides Joe Johnson. Like, there's nothing. I, great. Joe Johnson signed with the Pistons. My quick thoughts, great for the big three. Nice little pickup. Like, I'm not going to, like, significant news that's actually somewhat worthy of talking about was the Dwight Howard news of him signing with the Lakers three weeks ago. And that wasn't even huge significant news. And overall, it was over-exaggerated because there's nothing else to talk about. Dwight Howard shouldn't have got, I mean, again, he he's, you know, he was great a while ago, but overall, I think it should, it's a headline, you know, it's worthy to talk about, but it was over-exaggerated a lot of, by many people, because there's nothing else to talk about. You have to get creative, so I got creative. I'm holding off my predictions, because the NBA season's a month and a half away, in case any trades happen, in case any pickups, I like to wait. Because people make these predictions way too early. Wait, okay? Just wait, wait, wait. Have some patience. So I got a little creative. I was sitting there, yes, uh, two days ago, and I said, listen, there is, this is like a chance for you to do NBA. You haven't done it in a while. You've got to, you know, you got to show some love to those NBA fans because there's no football on at the moment, okay? Football is big. Once Thursday rolls around, Friday, Saturday, you get that little break, and then, you know, you have college football, obviously, but then Sunday, and then you're stuck. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, so I finally got that little chance to do a little NBA, so here we go. I'm basically gonna go, I think it's, let me just count real quick, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine new duos. There's probably 12 to 13 in the league. I got to nine of the more significant ones. And don't get me wrong, they're, I think everyone's significant in its own way, but some of them are like, oh, dudes. Like, I won't be getting to CP3 and Danilo Gallinari. I just feel like that's not one you guys would be too interested in. Some of them are younger duos. Some of them, you'll just get the point. But this is not me ranking these nine new duos. I'm just, these are in no specific order. Uh, and I'm just going to give them a grade on how I think they'll fit together. First, we'll start off with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George from the Los Angeles Clippers. I'm going to give them an A-. I wrote 
After Kawhi Leonard made his huge decision to go to LA and join the Clippers, the Clippers also traded for PG-13, meaning this is two stars playing together for the first time in in the NBA for a team neither of them have ever played for. But nonetheless, I think this duo will work very well. They clearly have a connection and both want to join forces and pair up, and it's happened. My one quote-unquote concern will be that they both they're both wings with somewhat similar play styles, but I don't think that will be that will affect them too much. PG thirteen just played with Russell Westbrook for two years, which makes me wonder if playing alongside Kawhi Leonard will really be a big deal. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard's going to take the reins offensively, and some people may sit there and say, you know, is PG thirteen okay being the second guy? People would say that, but they don't. He just played with Russell Westbrook. Now, most people think Paul George is better than Russell Westbrook, but Russell Westbrook had the reins of the offense, and he had a high usage rate. He'll fit better with Kawhi Leonard. I know Paul George is someone who could space the floor, a star that could space the floor for Russell Westbrook, but Russ is such a ball-dominant guy. Paul George didn't seem to have much of a problem with it. I, I do think Paul George would have liked to kind of get a few more touches himself, but now I think with Kawhi Leonard is, you know, Kawhi Leonard is much better than Russ at this point of his career, but Russ is so ball dominant. Kawhi's ball dominant as well, but not, not, not like Russ. Okay. So I don't think that'll be too much of a problem. I give him an A minus. I can't put him at an A plus any of these guys at an A plus because we haven't seen them play, you know? And I just think this, I think this duel will pan out. They both want to play, uh, join forces and play on the same team, I think this duo is going to work out. Then we flip to the other team in LA, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, Los Angeles Lakers, their big time duo. I give them an A minus. Uh, I wrote after uh, A minus, I'll also note, same as Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I wrote after coming off a very disappointing season that saw LeBron's Lakers miss the playoffs, the Lakers traded away multiple assets and made an absolute blockbuster of a trade, trading for Anthony Davis. The two have obviously never played together before, but they both really want to be in LA, and they both have been itching to join forces for a while. I think these two superstar talents complement each other very well. LeBron can bring the playmaking of the duo to the duo, setting up AD on the post in ways Rondo did two seasons ago in New Orleans as well as most of the three-point shooting and playoff experience, which is big considering a lot of people question Davis's ability to lead a team and win in the playoffs. Then Davis can bring the defense, mostly rim protection, rebounding, and overall can be the big man, while LeBron, who brings solid size, is the point guard. Don't get me wrong also about the rebounding. LeBron can obviously rebound the ball, but Anthony Davis will bring more of the rebounding to the duo. There are many things both of them can do as well, like scoring and rebounding. And I think the two will have chemistry. My only concern, I have two concerns, but I'll get to this one first. My only, my concern, one of my concerns would be how will Davis get into, do in the number two role? He has been the main man since day one. So it'll be interesting, it'll be an interesting adjustment, but I think it should be one he handles pretty well. My second concern is LeBron with big men, star big men. I mean, a lot of people, he said here, I think they complement each other well, but, you know, LeBron in his history with star big men like Chris Bosh and Kevin Love, they've got worse on LeBron's team. Like, Chris Bosh didn't get significantly worse, but, like, Kevin Love kind of did. And I do think both of them were, I don't want to say injury-riddled, especially Kevin Love was. I don't know about Chris Bosh, but, again, Chris Bosh didn't significantly get worse. I think he was a little, but then, again, Chris Bosh was coming 
to Miami to be the third man, where in Toronto you could argue he's the main man, or at least the second star. So it was a bit of an adjustment there, and kind of the same with Kevin Love. He went from being the main man to, and, and, whoa, I just made a realization. Maybe AD sliding into that second role will be a problem. Maybe it will be more of a problem than cracking it up to be. Chris Bosh, arguably the main man, goes to Miami to be the third guy, struggles. Kevin Love, main man in Minnesota, goes to Cleveland, ideally to be the second man, but turns out he's the third guy behind Kyrie. I think they had an idea he could be better. He's probably better than Kyrie at the time. Anthony Davis, same thing. But here's the thing about Anthony Davis. Davis is on another level than they were. Davis right now is better than Love was when he got traded to Cleveland and Bosch when he left for Miami. I think that. And not to mention Davis is the clear-cut second guy. Bosch was the third guy. Love was maybe going to be the second guy, but turned out to be the third guy. Davis is not going to turn out to be the third guy. He's clearly better than everyone except for LeBron on this roster. And maybe by next year, he's even better than LeBron. I don't know. So we'll see what happens there. But those are my questions uh, with LeBron and Anthony Davis. But overall, I think this should be a solid duo that complements each other well. Then I move over to Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. I give this uh, Brooklyn duo a B. I'm a little uneasy about it. I don't hate it. Don't love it as much as I did with the first two. Let me explain. I wrote, Now, unfortunately, due to Katie's injury, we may not we may not see this duo in full force this season or see this duo at all. But when Katie comes back, assuming at full health and strength, here's how I think this uh, here's how I think things will go. I don't see this duo being a match made in heaven, and I do see co- a few conflicts, but overall, things will go pretty well. As long as KD comes back to full strength, I'm still not, I'm not concerned about him. I'm concerned about his partner in crime, Kyrie Irving. I do think Kyrie's with a guy that re- he respects and is okay being the second option to, to certain extents, but that doesn't mean that he won't get frustrated here and there or get into a or get a bit too ball dominant. KD has shown he can play with other stars, as long as they are not too much of a ball hog like Russ was back in OKC, and Kyrie doesn't reach that extent. But the last time Kyrie was the number two guy, he wanted outs. I think on the court, if Kyrie cooperates, this can be a good duo, but it comes down to how he cooperates and how good KD is when he comes back. If KD, Again, if KD comes back to full strength, he will not be the problem. It's going to be, how does Kyrie behave? How does Kyrie accept the role? You know, do him and his, you know KD get into conflicts? I even think Kyrie getting into conflicts with the rest of the team could affect their duo and how he plays on the court and how KD has to respond to that and kind of be that middleman, right? That's kind of kind of being split apart. You know, you've got the team, you've got Katie in the middle. On his right, he's got the rest of the 13 players on the team, and on his left, he's got his buddy, Kyrie Irving. And that could pull him apart, and eventually maybe he gets sick and tired of it. I'm gonna give him a B for now. I think on the court they could fit well together. I, I it's just all gonna come down to Kyrie Irving and how he, I guess you could say, behaves. Then I move over to James Harden and Russell Wel- Westbrook. Of the Houston Rockets, I'm giving them a C. Whew. I know some people don't like this, some people agree. I wrote perhaps the most intriguing duo on this list. The two most ball dominant players in the NBA will be on the same team this season, and it's going to be a sight to see, to say the least. This duo comes with its regular season perks, but when it comes to the playoff time, when it comes playoff time, I don't know how much I can trust this duo. 
Yes, Russ and Harden have played together, but that was back when they were younger and less ball dominant. And yes, they like each other and respect each other, and they are excited for the opportunity to play for the same team again. And don't, I don't think, and don't, and they don't think sharing the ball will be a problem, but time will tell. Defensively, they're not the best duo either. Personally, this duo will get their the Rockets a solid regular season and some phenomenal games and highlights, but I don't think it'll work well in the end. This team could go on to win a playoff round, possibly even two. I can't see them winning the Western Conference Finals. This duo has talent. I mean, when I look at it, talent-wise, this duo is probably third best in the league. Yeah, and well, no, I take that back. Fourth. Fourth. Talent-wise, LeBron and AD, Kawhi and Paul George, Kyrie and KD are better. James Harden and Ross have a lot of talent, okay? They have a lot of talent. So, I, I, I think it's there. I think the talent's there, and if they could... Re- if Ross and Harden can cook together, and the role players around them could be very good, they could win a title. Like... If they get the correct role players and a good depth behind them and those two click and stay healthy, this duo could win a title. I just don't see that happening. I don't see them clicking. I don't see their role players being enough. So I I just don't. I don't see them even going to the finals. Some people love this duo. Some people think it's going to work. And they don't really have an explanation for it. They just think it's going to work. Others don't, and I don't think it will. Then I move over to Steph Curry and D'Angelo Russell of the Golden State Warriors. I gave them a B. I wrote, this would be a B plus, but since I think they may have some defensive struggles, I put them at a B. But nonetheless, this will be a good fit in Golden State. Now, obviously, D'Lo probably isn't their second best player, but these two are the backcourt duo, especially with no clay. A lot of people think their the, their play styles don't really complement each other, and that may be true, but Cur- but Curry is too good of a teammate, player, and pro to make this duo fail chemistry-wise. And overall, I think they could complement each other in certain ways at times. They can both run an offense. They can both run an offense, which could give them, which could give the other possessions to take a little breather and try a bit harder on defense. Now, although Clay is better than D'Lo, he can't exactly run an offense like D'Lo can. Plus, both these guys can play off-ball, but since Curry will probably take most of the ball-handling responsibilities, this will be big for D'Lo. Russell has showed he can play off-ball back when he played with Kobe, not to mention Curry isn't nearly as selfish as him. That does raise the question of, now that D'Lo knows what it's like to run an offense and be the man, is he willing to step down from that role? Personally, I think he'll be just fine. When I say just fine, slow down a bit, I do think he'll get... Slightly frustrated at times, but I can't see anyone getting mad with Curry. I think Curry is just too unselfish. I just, I see this fuel working. If D'Lo was the shooting guard and not the main man with almost any other player, I don't really know how it would fit. But Curry is just too good of a teammate, too good of a pro, too good of a player to let this duo fail. I don't think they'll complement each other perfectly, but I think they'll make it work. I think they're going to sit there with two puzzle pieces that don't exactly fit, but you'll make it work, okay? And I think it'll be a solid duo. Talent-wise, they don't, they're don't they not as good as some of these other duos on this list, but they're overall one of the better duos in the league. Again, they don't complement each other perfectly, but the two are going to compromise and make things work. Then we've got Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis. 
of the Dallas Mavericks. I gave them an A. I wrote, this this is obviously assuming Porzingis comes back 100% and whatnot, but but I think this duo will be a good fit. A very good fit, to say the least. First of all, I may, may I mention that this duo has had much more time than every other duo on this list to start working together, getting to know each other, and everything else that goes into quote-unquote chemistry. Obviously, Chris Stapps wasn't 100% for most of that time, and guys like Russ and Harden have played together before. Keep in mind, their play styles have changed since then, and many of these other guys, like LeBron and AD, have known each other for a while, but that's beside the point I'm getting at. Personally, this is just going to be a very great young duo. Not to mention, they don't have a ton of pressure on them, either to work out and contend right away, like most of these other duos. They're young They're young guys on a young, developing team. I like these guards and big man duos that seem to complement each other each other's games really well. This duo doesn't bring a ton of defense or athleticism, but this duo has a ton of young talent. I think Luke is a solid playmaker that can set up Porzingis, and I think this duo's pick and roll slash pick and pop game could be deadly. Keep an eye out for this young duo. I really like what Dallas did. They gave up a bag of chips for Kristaps Porzingis. Don't get me wrong, Dennis Smith Jr. is a nice young uh athletic point guard don't get me wrong those two first round picks have value don't get me wrong you don't really want to take on Tim Hardaway or Courtney Lee's contract but for Chris Stapps Porzingis it's worth it the big concern is how does Chris Stapps um how does Chris Stapps return that was a big injury he just suffered Luckily, though, Chris Stapps is more of a skilled player. You know, most big men would rely on more of their athleticism, but Chris Stapps does not have a lot of athleticism. He is more of a skilled-type player. He's a skilled big man. And when it comes to injuries, more of the Dennis Smith Juniors of the world should be the ones you're worried about when they get hurt. How will they return? More of those players that rely more on athleticism rather than skill or finesse. So, (coughs) excuse me. I just think this duo will work very well. I think there's two young guys that have had time to bond. You really haven't heard any problems. I just don't see Luka Doncic not working out really in this duo. I just think he's a good player, good teammate. And overall, I think things will work out just fine. And again, moving Dennis with Jr., I just want to throw this in there too. I forgot to throw this in there. He didn't want to be there. He did not compliment Luka Doncic well. Doncic didn't go out there complaining either. And I'm not saying that's not going to be the same case with Porzingis. I think him and Porzingis will compliment each other very well. Then I move over to Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley of the Utah Jazz. I gave them an A- for a grade. I wrote, although I think some people tend to overrate this duo a little, and I get it. Uh, uh, let me restart. I did this wrong. Bad grammar by me. Although I think some people tend to overrate this duo a little, they're still very good. I get it. Rudy Gobert is the best, if not second best player on this on their team. But this is their backcourt duo. So I threw it on here. Defensively, they're a solid duo. They're not stellar, but they're def- decent defensively as a pairing. Then offensively, you've got a vet in Mike Conley who can run your offense, score at the rack, and distribute the ball. Then you've got the younger guy in Donovan Mitchell who brings phenomenal athleticism in most of the all-around scoring. My biggest concern will probably be the three-point shooting in this duo. Conley is a known for his three-ball, and Mitchell's a little inconsistent behind the arc. But overall, this duo should be a great fit. I didn't really like the pairing at first, but then I looked into it. I was like, okay, it's not that bad. 
I underrated both their defense, and I kind of hated on Donovan Mitchell's three-point shooting a little bit. This should be a good duo. Again, I think people overrate them a little. I know overrate in the same sentence as Mike Conley in the Utah Jazz. Pretty odd, but still, I think they'll be a good duo and a good fit. Then we move over to another young duo. Uh, Mike Conley, not young, but I meant Chris Stapps and Luca. John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. of the Memphis Grizzlies. I give them an A. I, I wrote, I know, I know. My two highest grades are full are the two are for the two young duos, but I really like the fits here. Not to mention the same thing I said when I talked about Luca and Chris Stapps. They're younger, they're they're younger and the other guys, they're younger than the other guys on this list, besides they're younger than you know what I mean, okay? Same thing I said with Luke and Kristaps. They're younger than the other guys, which means they, they're a little more open to change, and there's a little less pressure on them to succeed right away, giving them time to gel so they don't have to panic and don't if they don't succeed right away, and they don't have to play the blame game. Defensively, John Morant isn't that great. He tends to seek a lot on of steals and blocks, and he doesn't play great real defense. And although Triple J's is a big man, he brings stellar defense to this duo, really picking up the slack of John Morant. Then offensively, this duo will gel really well. Jaron doesn't get enough credit for a solid three ball, so although John needs to improve from behind the arc, Jaron Jackson Jr. can pick up some of the slack there. And and with Jaw's crazy athleticism and ability to finish at the rack, this duo's pick and roll game will be great. Not to mention Jaw's great court vision and the fact that these two have seemed to bond into great friends almost instantly. Right when he got drafted, Jaron Jackson Jr. was just waiting for him. He opened him up with arms. It's also going to depend again on how Jaron Jackson returns from his injury, but you get that point. I think this duo is going to work really well. I'm a huge Jaron Jackson Jr. fan, and I'm not the biggest John Morant fan, but I do. Who does not like, like, who hates John Morant and thinks he's going to bust? No one thinks John Morant's going to bust. And as long, I love Jaron Jackson Jr. Hopefully, he can just return from his injury. I think these two bond really well. They've probably been working out really well. I think they're going to gel very, very well. And I think most people don't really have a problem with me putting this them that high. Then I move over to the last two we'll be discussing, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland of the Cleveland Cavaliers. I gave them a B. I wrote, this is another intriguing duo that some people love and some people hate. I wouldn't say I love or hate this duo. I'm more in the middle. Garland obviously isn't the best defender, but luckily Sexton is nails defensively and can pick up the slack there. But it will be tough when they face duos like Dame and CJ to stop them both. Then, offensively, I raise even more questions. Are their games too similar? When you look at it, they're both mostly three-point shooters and scorers. They can both drive to the hoop and distribute the ball a little, but their clear strengths on the, that's their clear strengths on offense. Personally, I think their games are similar, but I don't think it'll hurt them too much. Which also brings up the question, can Garland play off ball to Sexton? Obviously, Garland was hurt most of the last season at Vanderbilt, but before that, he was the main ball handler for them. So it should be interesting to see how this duo does. Personally, I think he'll do just fine playing off ball of Colin Sexton. That also raises the... Then we raise questions like, will Garland weigh them down defensively? Yes, he will. Especially when, again, they're facing duos like David CJ. But if they're facing a duo like... Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart, it won't be a problem because Colin Sexton can guard Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart is not too much to handle for really any defender in the NBA. And are there are their games too similar offensively? 
Oh, wait, I already said that. And is Sexton for real? Yes, I, I, I just think I'm just throwing out questions at this point. And last but not least, will Garland recover from his injury and translate to the pros? I can't guarantee this one, but luckily Gar- Garland relies more on skill than athleticism, so again, that should help. I have a lot of questions about this duel, but hopefully they can pan out and bring joy once again to Cleveland. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, that is my nine duos, me grading how they'll fit chemistry-wise. I hope you enjoyed uh, a good, I don't know, almost 23, 24-minute talk for the first time in a while. So, I can't guarantee that consistently until the NBA season rolls around, but my predictions should come out pretty soon. We'll start getting into the NBA a little more. Hopefully, you know, around... Wednesdays, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, like middle of the week where the NFL is not too, uh, too in the way, I guess you could say. So now to wrap up today's episode, we'll be discussing the Dave Dombrowski firing and the Red Sox. Okay, so been about a week since we've talked about the Red Sox and their season's just about over, right? We kind of look at this. I think the last time I talked about them, right before Dave Dombrowski got fired, I think it was either the Friday or the Saturday. So I, I think I talked about them after their one uh, six to one win against the Yankees or their five to one loss, and I forget. Middle first after the first, it was right before Dave Dombrowski got fired. Ever since then, Sunday's game you lose ten to five to the Yankees, and once that game wrapped up, Dave Dombrowski was out of there. You come back Monday, get shot out by the Yankees five nothing. Then you go into a series against the Blue Jays, or you lose. Two of the three games. Now you're going up against the Phillies in a two-game stand. The season's over, right? The Red Sox are sitting at 77 is 70, which isn't horrible, but considering they just won 108 games and won the World Series last year, it's not good. You're 10 games behind the Rays and 19 behind the Yankees. The season is over. Glad I threw in the towel. I'm just not too interested in the Red Sox at this point. I'm ready. I... I'm interested in the Red Sox if they were playing good. All I'm interested in right now is to talk about Dave Dombrowski, and I'm interested for the offseason. Let's see what happens. Can they get the new GM? Again, once I ranted on them, my interest in talking about them kind of faded, and especially now that there's such a big gap at this point, there's not much to talk about this Red Sox team. It's the Dave Dombrowski news at this point. So I'm going to talk about that. What are my thoughts on Dave Dombrowski getting fired? Personally, I think it was the right move, but it was bad timing. The You know, like, middle of a Yankees series, you figured they would wait for the end of the season, or they'd... I just didn't expect it to happen, you know, right after a loss like that. And I, I don't know. Maybe it's a good time to do it, losing to your rivals. Like, you know what? Let's just not, let's just not, you know, end like a, a you know, this is a bad enough night. We just lost two our rivals. Let's just, I don't want to say make it worse, but, you know, you don't want to ruin, like, a good night, let's say, after a win, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, all, you know, Dave Dombrowski's kind of opened up and said, you know, all oh, these Red Sox, they're hard to please, you know, the fans. And Dave Dombrowski said this a lot, but I felt like when he said this this time, like, before he's just like, yes, the Red Sox are tough to, you know, fans are tough to please, but I knew that when I took the job. Boston's tough to please. Now he says it, like, I feel like I did a good job, but they're just t- tough to please. Like, now all of a sudden, now that you're fired, it's like self-defense. 
Dombrowski didn't do a bad job. It's just we don't think he could set us up for the future. The Red Sox are in a weird transition right now where they're not, they don't have a ton of money. They're coming off that championship. They've got to kind of transition for the future. They're not that great set up for the future. They don't have a lot of guys in the minor leagues. They don't have many, they don't really have anyone for pitching prospects. Uh, and yeah, you've got guys like Devers, Bogart, Ben Intendi, but you don't really have a lot of money. You need that GM who can come out here, set you up with the process, set you up for the future. Dave Dombrowski's not that guy. Dave Dombrowski is someone who's good at making moves at the moment, feeling out his instincts, making moves due to his instincts at the moment. He's not someone who can set you up for the future. They just didn't trust Dave Dombrowski with the, that big task. And I don't blame him. I think it was the right move just to... Not a great, not great timing. So some, you know, guys that I've heard out there are guys like um, one, oh, one. I was just thinking, who should I talk about? Theo Epstein of the Chicago Bears would be amazing. That would be probably the best. Um, what's the word? Probably the best. Decision. Probably the best guy to hire. It would be tough because right now he's in Chicago uh, and he's doing well there. I mean, he's led them to um, World Series. He's led them to multiple playoff appearances. He's really done a great job with that Cubs team and he's got a lot on his plate. I mean, guys like Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, John Lester, Javier Baez, and Kyle Schwarber are reaching free agency in two years. So, you know, he's got a lot on his plate and I think he's excited for that opportunity. It would be tough to learn him back home to Boston, but it wouldn't be impossible, okay? Some people said maybe you'd have to give him a bit of ownership. I mean, he's a great, he's an amazing GM. I'd love to get him. I just think it would be tough to get him at the same time. It would be tough to get Theo Epstein in here to really uh, come back home and GM your team. Uh, I just, I don't see it happening, but I would like to see it happen. It would take possibly giving him a piece of ownership. Maybe that's worth it. Maybe John Henry sits there and says, you know what, I'm willing to give him a piece of ownership. You could just go out there and sign a GM, but if you want a prestige GM like the Epstein, it may take a sliver of ownership. 1%, 2% of ownership maybe? I mean, Forbes ranked us at $3.2 billion. So 1% of stake? would be $30 million. 1% of the franchise would be 30 mil. So there's a big difference between 1%, 1.5%. I mean, 1.5 would be $45 million. So you know, maybe Theo Epstein gets 0.8% of ownership. It would be a small number, but a significant number. Because any organization, like if you own 1% of a franchise, it's a lot of money. The Red Sox, $3.2 billion. So 1% sounds like a small number, but it's very significant. Is John Henry willing to give up the small, small sliver of ownership to get a prestige G as a GM as prestige as Theo Epstein? Would that be enough to learn Theo Epstein? Do you need the first call I make to Theo Epstein is no ownership involved. You don't if you have the uh, if you have the ability to sign Theo Epstein and not have to give him any ownership, you take that if you're John Henry. You don't want to give up any ownership. But if you sit there and you call Theo Epstein and he says, I'm interested, but you have to give me a good contract and at least 1.1% of ownership or 0.8% of ownership. John Henry's gonna sit there and say, 
I'll think about it. A few days, he looks at his GM options, maybe goes to a few other of his top options, doesn't really like some of them, maybe a few decline the offer, to the point where I just don't think John Henry wants to go all in for Theo Epstein by giving him 1% of the you know, ownership or 1.2%, but maybe he will, he's willing to do that. Maybe if you know the options aren't looking so bright, he goes with the Theo Epstein option, give him a little bit of ownership, something like that. I don't know, but he's such a prestige option. Theo Epstein would be the guy that I want, but I just don't know if you're going to get him. It might take giving up ownership, which is millions and millions of dollars. Other options, one option would be just decision maker by committee. Right now, the Red Sox are currently being managed by a combination of Zach Scott, Raquel, Raquel Ferreira, Eddie Romero, and Brian O'Halloran. I don't know how to say most of those names. Halloran. I don't know most of them, again, uh, but I don't know how taking four guys, you know, I don't know if that's the approach they're going to they're gonna want. I don't know if they're going to sit there and say, you know what, I like how this is working. I think we're just going to do decision by committee. We're going to take these four guys, and they're, as a group, going to make the decisions. That's a weird way to do it. Not many teams, you see really any teams in any sport do this. Uh, you know, that's mostly how you do it if someone just gets fired off the bat. You'll just sit there and say, you know what? There's not really one assistant GM that we have. We'll just throw in a few guys that can make the decisions right now. It's not too important. We don't have any real big decision. Just limit their role. Because if you're John Henry, you're just sitting there saying, well, they're just going to be named the GM. They're not going to do much. Obviously, the GM is doing something every day. But I think it's to this point where it's not a time of the year where the GM's going to be making many moves. Extensions aren't going to be made in September, right? It comes to the offseason. So they have to get the GM soon, right? The playoffs are right around the corner. By the end of October, by the start of November, you're going to need a GM. That's when the GM really starts playing a big role. And it's not like you can just not have a GM and not make any moves in this next month and a half. You need a GM to at least start discussing something. You want to discuss stuff with players, with GMs for potential trades and signings before we get to that you know, offseason. You don't want to all of a sudden just start your offseason plans on November first or second, I don't even know, whenever the World Series ends, or the offseason starts, you just don't want to go with that approach, so you need to do some game planning, but that's why you want to get this GM here soon. I want a new GM by the start of October, which gives you, I mean, at least by the start of October. I think that's a pretty fair deadline, like, yeah, yeah give yourself time. A lot of these GMs are kind of sitting here getting ready for the playoffs. And I know Brian Flores kind of, again, we've seen like Matt Patricia, mostly Brian Flores, you know, he took the Miami role basically while he was still in New England, but this is a different sport, a di different kind of thing. You just don't see it as much, but I think you're giving them a solid amount of time. By the start of October, you got to have a GM. you got to really start, give yourself at least a month to game plan with the guy that will be in charge. Other guys could be guys like Chain Bloom. Of the Rays, I mean, you've seen the Red Sox trying to, I don't want to say copy, but they're trying to take in what the Rays are doing. So, just take a Rays executive and Chain Bloom. He's the vice president of baseball operations, and he nearly landed the New York Mets GM job last fall. Uh, he was also the first uh, MLB blogger 
to become a GM in the history of the MLB. So if you're trying to emulate what the Rays are doing, just take Chain Bloom. This is a guy who is with the Rays, and if you're trying to kind of do go in that same direction as them, just take someone who is kind of a part of what the Rays are doing, right? Another guy could be Josh Bryant. These are some options that I'm hearing from CBS Sports. The Theo Epstein wasn't on CBS, wasn't even on CBS Sports suggestions, but I was just like, no, Theo Epstein has to be on here. So, I mean, here are some of the CBS's options: was the decision maker by committee, Chain Bloom, Josh uh, Byron's of the Dodgers, and that would be kind of a guy that you could bring in here if they want to be a player development machine. Is if you bring in Josh Byron's. That's a, you know he's so good with the um, player development, but my problem with that is, wh- what do we need to develop? We have no one in our minor league system. We have one top 100 player, 100 prospect. I know you know some guys pan out, some don't. So overall, maybe we have a little more than 100, but we just don't know it. But we don't have any real players to develop. If we want, if we bring in Josh Barnes. We're going to have to train Mookie Betts. That's how I look at it. If we bring in here, we have if we bring him in here, we have to trade Mookie Betts for young players for him to develop. Because what's the point of bringing in a player development machine when there's no players to develop? Not a huge fan of this one, to be honest. Another one would be Matt Arnold of the Brewers. Uh, he's their senior vice president and assistant general manager, and he's been considered a future GM for a while now. Uh, dating back to his time with the Rays. So he's been with the Rays and um, almost went to the Giants, but he's been with the Rays, so he's more familiar with small market teams uh, with where you kind of have to cheat build the team, I guess you could say. So that would be – it's a risky approach if you get him because Matt Arnold's a guy who's used to being in a small market team with not a lot of money. Now all of a sudden, you don't give him a lot of money because – you give them a high payroll, but most of that payroll's already gone. But a small market team, like Dave Dombrowski went from the Tigers to the Red Sox. He didn't seem to handle this huge big market thing. Like, he had a problem with it. Would Matt Arnold have a problem with the pressure? You go from the Rays to assistant manager of the Brewers to all of a sudden manager of one of the biggest franchises in sports? Like, I just don't know how that would go down. And, yeah, saving money... He's probably good at it, but what if all of a sudden you go ahead and just give him a lot of money? Does he just get overwhelmed and start spending it all, or does he keep that saving-type mentality? I just don't know. But Theo Epstein's the guy I want. I'm just not sure you're going to get him. So that's my take on the Dave Dombrowski firing. That's going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, make sure to go follow my Instagram at After the Buzzer Sports Talk, all lowercase no spaces. Again, that's at After the Buzzer Sports Talk, all lowercase no spaces uh, for sports content and podcast updates. And also, call in on the Anchor Mobile app, download the Anchor Mobile app, go into the Anchor Mobile app, type in at, uh, not at After the Buzzer Sports Talk, just After the Buzzer Sports Talk. Send in a voice message if you can't get the Anchor Mobile app. Go on Safari or whatever. Google, I don't even know if that works on Google, but just Safari or whatever search engine you have, type in after the Buzzer Sports Talk by Aiden Mayer on Anchor. You should be able to send in voice messages that way. Again, any anything's on the table. So thank you guys for listening, and I hope to see you guys next time.